Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the Wonky Show. This week, we'll discuss the fire that affected student accommodation in Bolton. Uh, we'll unpick the incident where a blind international student was forcibly removed from a debate at the Oxford Union. Uh, we'll get the latest on the major party's HE pledges at the election. And Hidden History looks at university chancellors. It's all coming up. really raises these, these questions of liminality, right? These, these kind of fuzzy edges of responsibility and influence um, when we come to these rather sharp issues of, of you know, specific incidences of, of violence or hate or harassment. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into higher education policy, people and politics. I'm Jim Dickinson and before we get the wrong idea and go, our expert panel is as ever here to push the button of HE policy. Uh, In London, it's Jess Moody, Senior Advisor at Advanced HE. Jess, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, My highlight of the week, Jim, I was visiting University of Leicester this week to talk about inclusive curriculum, which is wonderful, but also had the added bonus that I got to see one of the few university buildings that has a genuine rocket in the foyer. Uh, And in Grantham this week, we have Wonky's Associate Editor David Kernan. DK, your magic moment this week. Um, The legend that is Andy Yule, uh, the king of all of the data, he built me a drum kit and I picked it up on Saturday and he's done a cracking job. He's wrapped all the toms, he's done everything, he's a legend and it's a great kit. So, yes, we start this week with the blaze of Bolton. At the weekend, a major fire broke out in a private accommodation block near the university in the northwest, raising questions both about cladding and the role of HE providers in the provision of student accommodation. DK, lead us off. Okay, so this was in uh, last Friday evening. Um, I mean, mercifully, no students lost their lives as a result of the blaze. There were two injuries during the evacuation. There had been concerns previously about the private student accommodation firm, Urban Student Life, who um, owned the blocks. Uh, They were suspended from a national code of such providers in 2016 because they had issues with the development in Leeds, uh, which is a staggeringly rare thing. Now, a lot of people have compared the blaze to what happened at the Grenfell fire. Then there was, according to the fire brigade statements, um, an issue with the cladding. Um, it was not clad in the same aluminium uh, composite material at Grenfell. It was clad in what's called HPL, high pressure laminate, which has got um, a cellulose type of structure. It's basically wood, as far as I can tell. So there was one block of the cube, which has multiple blocks that uh, caught fire. Other parts of the cube development had had their cladding replaced in February 2019, possibly due to the building amendment regulations of 2018, which uh, came in after Grenfell, which effectively prescribed the use of um, ACM uh, uh, cladding, which refers to... uh, the European Union standards on combustibility and smoke generation for building materials. Uh, but there is a question as to whether those regulations apl- would have applied to uh, the other block that did uh, catch fire. 
They only apply to work carried out since December 2018, and the block was built in 2014. They only apply to buildings over 18 metres above ground level, and that particular block was not over 18 metres above ground level. And there are serious questions as to whether those regulations apply at all to student halls of residence. Um, I've been trying during the week to get um, to talk to people who uh, work for these residence companies in, in these areas. They're understandably reluctant to chat to the press at the moment. Um, but uh, uh, privately owned student blocks do not fit into any of the standard residential uh, categories. Uh, they are what's called generis, um, which means that they are their own thing. Uh, so local councils get to decide precisely which regulations apply to these uh, blocks. Um, I think from the fire, there's been a, a clear movement. Loads of people have written letters to say, look, uh, these regulations should imply, uh, sh- should apply in full to, uh, student accommodation blocks, whoever owns them and however tall they are. Um, and it remains to be seen what uh, the government will be doing about it. Yeah. Jess, this was obviously a terrifying uh, incident for the students involved. Yeah, and I think, you know, our hearts go out to, to everyone involved. Um, if, if you've, you know, ever been involved in a fire at, at night, it's particularly kind of throws everybody um, up in the air. I think the... Um, what was really heartening to me, you know, just even just tuning in on social media was the amazing response, um, both from the, you know, students' union, from the university, but also, you know, there, there were, there was um, uh, students from other universities, even in the wider region, you know, already starting to, you know, collect, you know, practical things to help folks on the ground, offers of beds for the night. Um, so I think we saw this, you know, this, these things are terrible, but they also show an amazing spirit of generosity um, that is there um, amongst not just the the students, but amongst the wider university uh, community. So it was really kind of heartening to see that coming together so quickly and, and those shows of support. DK, obviously lots of the pressure in the letters and so on has been on government around uh, this. And, and, you know, you highlighted some of the stuff with building regs. Do, do, what responsibilities do, could or should universities have in this space? Um, it's an interesting one. I should start by saying the response of the University of Bolton to the uh, disaster has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, they've supported students in finding new accommodation. They have um, in large uh, paid for that accommodation. They've uh, supported the compensation of students for their lost materials. Um, and obviously this is actually going to have an acad- academic impact because things like uh, laptops and um, notes from lectures, um, artworks and models, uh, sketches and diagrams have all been lost. Um, So, I mean, um, uh, most of the students attended the University of Bolton. A few attended other universities in the area. And um, the response, particularly of Bolton, has been excellent. Uh, There is a real question about the responsibilities that uh, universities have for students who are staying in accommodation in the private sector. This was obviously a large development in the centre of Bolton, so it's reasonable to expect Bolton students would live there. But the university did not uh, did not explicitly recommend this uh, development to their students. They recommended another development in Bolton, which was also uh, privately owned, but they clearly had an agreement with them. And they offered advice to students who were looking to stay in private centre re- 
private sector rented accommodation. The question has to be what actually can universities do in terms of students who are renting in the private sector? I think that the pressure really needs to come on landlords from the uh, local council. There's been some instances of universities having basically approved lists, which is good in some ways, but also means that students can have problems finding accommodation if the approved list is all full, they have to go elsewhere. And that means that they're dealing absolutely with the dregs of the accommodation that's on offer. Um, so, I mean, universities need to think carefully about how they can uh, best support their students in private accommodation, but they also need to think about what realistically they can actually do. And Jess, this is tricky, isn't it? Because... Uh, you, you know, local authorities will be really keen to kind of green light purpose-built student accommodation in order to take the pressure off the local uh, HMO houses in multiple occupancy market. Yeah, I mean, I th- we, yeah, there's this this in, you know ongoing question of you know what is the impact of um, student housing um, in uh, different communities. Um, obviously, we we continually hear stories of um, you know uh, locals either you know not welcoming the student uh, uh, nightlife and and um, you know behaviours that they believe comes with that, and at the same time these questions of as you say um, you know. Uh, genuine questions of, of space and housing um, for everyone else. Um, so yeah, there's some real tensions here. I think, as you say, the, the key questions are, you know, when there are these pressures, how do you know to to provide for everybody? How do we do it in a way that students can be confident? And you know, those those people around them, you know, their parents and carers and families, how can they be sure that they're sending them off to somewhere that has you know certain minimum expectations of safety? And I think this also raises, you know, one of those interesting questions about, you know, what go what happens when things go wrong? And you know, I. I I, I hope that um, a lot of folks will take heart from seeing how the universities have supported students, you know, in these emergencies. You know, these are you know parents and families. You know, this is their worst nightmare. Um, so um, that question of what would happen if everything goes wrong um, is, is a salient one too. And DK, this is only going to get worse, isn't it? So you know, the, the, we're, at, we're at the trough of the demographic dip. Uh, and unless a load of universities appear in, 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 in towns and cities other than where they are now, the, that, that kind of pressure on uh, kind of residential space is only going to increase. It clearly is. Um, there's obviously um, an expected influx of students, although, of course, all of this depends on the results of the election and the policies of the parties that are um, going to define the next uh, the the next generation of student experience, which we'll, I, I guess we'll talk about later. But arguably, uh, staying in large student uh, residences is a good experience for students. Um, it makes ten, it makes sense in terms of space and it makes sense in terms of the, uh, the, the local, uh, uh, uh rented, uh, uh, housing market in large, student population towns it can be quite difficult to find a place to rent if you're not a student and i think that the idea of having specifically student blocks or um is helpful um i think that there are a couple of downsides to this expected expansion too this the uh first is it is so obviously um 
an investment market that you're going to get lots of people piling in that might not necessarily have the best interest of students at heart um, and a lot of them will be doing so with the direct backing of their institutions you, um, institutions need to be very careful in who they work with and um, it's a little bit of um, a Prince Charles kind of a point but a lot of the buildings are just ridiculously ugly uh, they sit in the middle of of this um, often quite rundown parts of the towns. So these uh, big, weird uh, kind of uh, gleaming things with strange shapes and lights, obviously designed to appeal to students. And there needs to be some sort of the impact, both aesthetically and in terms of the economy of these places in um, in uh, kind of university towns and. S- Cities, I would expect to see potentially, uh, potentially more regulation on this as the problem becomes more acute. Good now, and both me and DK have written a couple of things on the site about this, so uh, we'll put the links in the show notes on the podcast page on the site. Good now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi there, um, I'm Maisha. I work at the Centre for Student Engagement at the University of Winchester, uh, where I have quite a few hats, but my favourite hat is for sure being able to research areas related to student engagement. So I've recently written a comment piece for Wonky looking at exam provisions uh, provided to Muslim students during Ramadan. And given the prominence of things like equality and diversity agendas, um, really mainly being focused around the BME attainment gap, I think it's important that we examine equality work uh, with an intersectional lens um, as well. Uh, My piece really does this by looking at how religion can affect uh, the academic experiences of students, specifically Muslim students who fast during Ramadan. Uh, My piece is also grounded in research that I've conducted um, looking into Muslim student experiences experience Um, and when I queried students about Ramadan exam considerations they were shocked to think that they would be entitled to such a thing and this shock has really come through being in an education system which hasn't previously supported uh, their religious needs or they've been met with really unhelpful responses from staff members such as you know well do you really have to fast Um, short answer being yes yes please Um, but in making sure that university spaces can become uh, more equitable for a diverse array of students I think it'd be really great for higher education institutions to think about the ways in which provisions like this can become more operationally feasible um, just in order to ensure that every student is um, you know leaving university with successful outcomes and they're given the uh, level playing field to, to do so. Now every week we're delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. Uh, with Nottingham Trent's academic registrar Mike Ratcliffe here's the hidden history of HE. Everyone who works in a university or is a student in a university at some point comes across a grand figure, the university chancellor, um, dressed in a gold lame um, outfit, um, shaking hands occasionally at a graduation ceremony. Um, but this is actually one of the oldest posts we have in universities, one of the remnants of the original setup when the first universities emerged. In Northern European universities, which had a kind of clerical link, we taught theology before we taught anything else, uh, they were diocesan officer. Someone of the the cathedral had a chancellor, uh, and the chancellor was the person in charge of the registers. So uh, the universities first linked up to the diocese 
uh, and their chancellor. But one of the early rights that the early universities got was to appoint their own chancellors. And from that point on, the chief officer of the university, the chancellor, was appointed by the university, often on a short-term uh, period, and that continues uh, quite happily up until the early 1500s. At which point, John Fisher, Bishop John Fisher, um, is an excellent chancellor, and they, they keep him on for quite a long time and eventually appoint him for life. He's very active in the university, he's president of a college, he organises great benefactions through Lady Margaret, um, uh, everything gets you know, properly organised and he gets permanently appointed. But he's also one of those chancellors that sets a little bit of a pattern in the 16th century, because of course he's um, executed for treason, which is not exactly what you, you want from your chancellor. Um, but Cambridge, therefore, becomes the, the ultimate in bad luck symbols for um, getting this appointment. Because in succession, Thomas Cromwell, Edward Seymour, John Dudley and Robert Devereux, so that's the Duke of Somerset, Duke of Northumberland, Earl of Essex, they all get executed as well. They're all made Chancellor of the University of Cambridge and they all get ex executed because they've decided that what they really want is a, is a man of great influence at court to play for the university's role. So in the uh, 16th century, that comes with some dangers, um, mostly that you get yourself um, executed. Oxford gets luckier. Um, most of its people do not get e executed uh, until it gets to the 17th century. It gets unlucky then. Um, so it appoints, in the same kind of vein as uh, Bishop John Fisher, um, William Lord. Uh, Lord is uh, a former president of a college, uh, St John's. He's a reforming chancellor of the university. He brings in a whole new set of statutes for the university, and he's charged with treason and executed by Parliament. Uh, now, obviously, in order to balance this out, the, the next person, after a while they get, is Oliver Cromwell to be the Chancellor. Uh, obviously, he's not executed for treason, uh, but he is posthumously executed for treason uh, to, to make up for it. So this goes backwards and forwards between the universities. So Cambridge uh, has the Duke of Monmouth. Uh, he gets executed for treason. Um, Oxford has uh, Edward Hyde, the um, Earl of Clarendon, uh, who is exiled. Um, uh, lots of things about whether his uh, behaviour is treasonable or not. Good thing about him being exiled is he writes his history of the rebellion, which earns so much money for the university press. It can afford a swanky new building built by uh, Nicholas Hawksmore, and a fund that continues to this day to fund scholarships. So for them, you know that that worked out nicely. Uh, but you go backwards and forth. The second Duke of Ormond, he's sent into exile for treason, uh, and it goes on in this vein. So this idea of having great men uh, to be a university chancellor doesn't always work out. The Scots have chancellors as well, uh, and a particular interesting pattern that Glasgow manages to have four successive Dukes of Montrose, um, father and son and grandson and grandson, uh, and therefore for 160 years the chancellorship is in one family as it passes through until this is all reformed in the, the late uh, 19th century. Modern universities at the end of that period also jump into this thing, and uh, there's a great collection of dukes and earls and marquises that become chancellors of the universities. Um, you know, if you, if you go into the, the buildings, they're great portraits of these Victorians with their huge beards uh, sit on the walls, all in their in their medals and uh, looking like every inch of the late Victorian um, aristocracy that they are. So. We've now settled to an actually much more sensible pattern. Our uh, chancellors aren't expected to be necessarily great statesmen uh, or women. Uh, some of them are. Some of them are more interesting kind of backgrounds. Uh, the last kind of key... Uh, 
shift on those things is should your chancellor be a political figure so i was interested that um shami chakrabarti stood down as the uh, chancellor of the university of essex because she joined the shadow cabinet we don't want to have a political figure um as our chancellor uh, at which point they appoint john burko um, who's slightly political in the last couple of years but essex seems to have got away with that um there's a great set of uh pathé newsreels of winston churchill turning up at the university of bristol in 1929 to become their chancellor and the students lifting him aloft and carrying him through the streets uh, in a great celebration as he becomes their chancellor again a hugely political figure then uh, stays uh, entirely inside uh, politics uh, so you can have your chancellor and be a prime minister not sure how many people are going to be choosing current members of the cabinet to be uh, their chancellors just yet though now, next up, a major row has been brewing all week over events at the Oxford Union. First, footage emerged showing security staff manhandling a blind international postgraduate student out of the famous debating chamber. And later, the president of the Oxford Union bowed to pressure to resign after accepting that he was wrong to be seen trying to blame the student in the aftermath of the incident. Jess, tell us more. Sure. So first off, just for the folks unfamiliar with the um, never-endingly weird Oxford vocabulary and structures, uh, we should just explain that the, the Oxford Union is an old and independent debating society. So that's separate from either of the big uh, Oxford universities or students' unions, uh, but its membership you know, is predominantly from Oxford University uh, students uh, and alumni. So um, uh, just to, to make that clear. So uh, this is obviously you know, a terrible and, and distressing incident for uh, Mr. Azamati, um, the, the student in question, um, and has had um, you know, quite international repercussions um, in, in, in getting um, into the press um, globally. Um, it's one of these incidents um, that um, starts asking wider questions. And I think we need to note that this is coming in the context of um, a very recent report from the EHRC into issues of uh, racial harassment. Um, there's been um, a lot of um, a comment from the Oxford University uh, Students' Union and the Oxford University Africa Society, um, basically saying that, uh, you know, this this acts this asks bigger questions um, of you know structures that enable um, in, um, behaviors that um, you know can be seen as racist or, or ableist so um, some big questions about you know what does this mean about you know who is you know very literally welcome and belongs in spaces um, you know in the university sphere in, in the widest sense um, but this um, one of the interesting questions for me is um, I really felt that this is a kind of really raises these these questions of liminality, right? These these kind of fuzzy edges of responsibility and influence um, when we come to these rather sharp issues of of you know specific incidences of, of violence or hate or harassment um, with students, you know, not just in terms of okay, well, you know, is this you know was this um, anything to do with the university structure? Um, what um, do we ask of the predominantly students who were in the audience who many people have critiqued as um, you know being very ineffective bystanders I can't comment on that we weren't there um, um, but also you know who stands up for whom um, one of the, the the little points in this story that that did hearten me was um, when uh, this particular student after this incident was himself accused um, of of um, um, uh, violent behaviour, and, and they, they did later drop those. Uh, the union did later drop those accusations. Um, but um, who actually walked in to defend him in his in his disciplinary hearing? Um, but uh, Helen Mountfield QC, uh, principal of his old college. So I, I would have liked to have seen some faces in that room. Um, so you know, th this is interesting 
you know, interesting and awful questions of who stands up for whom, who belongs where in in um, in um, our university and related communities. And DK, this question of uh, jurisdiction is interesting, isn't it? So uh, the, the, the Central University's Twitter account, uh, pretty unprecedented, this tweeted uh, in the middle of this. The union is an in- entirely independent club not governed by the university. But this student's treatment goes against our culture of inclusivity and tolerance. We're pressing the union for answers. And it's that, that, that thing about to what extent should, should, should the university, you know, take responsibility, process a harassment case and so on? It was absolutely an interesting statement. And I, I don't think I've seen anything similar from another university at the time. I think that, I mean, Oxford is uh, seen as like the platonic ideal of the university by many of our commentators, the uh, 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 chattering classes, etc. And the Oxford Union is seen as the ideal of a student society. So the, this, um, although even in isolation in any society, in any university, an absolutely uh, terrible series of events and uh, fair play f- to the president for taking responsibility for it and resigning. Um, um, although apparently he was having dinner with uh, Nicky Morgan at the time of the incident, which must have been nice for him. Um, but um, because of like the importance, the perceived importance of the Oxford Union, which is in essence, it is just a debating society. It's nothing particularly special. Um it um it's just blowing up the story and again means we're asking questions about stu- uh student societies and the way they act a couple of a couple of points in the story i picked up on um i was really surprised that the oxford union did not have uh special designated seating for people with disabilities that just seems such an obvious and probably a legally required thing for any society in any building to do it seems ridiculous that they don't uh, so I would really like to hear some actions as to why the Oxford Union, which I mean, I mean, I mean, many students see as an important part of the Oxford experience. I know a lot of people don't and have no time for it, but a lot of people want to go there at least once. Surely they should have the opportunity to access it. Um, and I feel like uh, the fact that this was an international postgraduate student added um a nasty coloring of racism to the to the action um and i feel like the way he was initially blamed for assaulting the people that were um dragging him from the buildings by the ankles was a really really appallingly bad look and is something that should never have happened so i think i'd also like to hear from the people in the security team for the oxford union who and i'd like to find out why they think uh, dragging somebody from um, a room by their ankles is a reasonable way to act yeah these are the tricky things it's about you know this and you know i think we've talked about this before but so you know there's the immediate questions of if something happens to one of your students how do you support that student from from a welfare perspective but also things like making them aware of um um you know any means they have to to report or to seek redress or to um um um, somehow you know pursue um any um, um sort of action um 
so there's that sort of support question. So, you know, and, and again, you know, um, um, you know, props to, to um, the university for, for being quite clear about how unacceptable they found this. And, you know, as, as an alumna, that, that was, you know, heartening to me um, um, to see that firm line. Um, but so there's the second uh, point, though, is, as you say, like, at what point um, is it is anything comes within a particular university or a particular SU or any particular organisation's responsibility in terms of should you have prevent, should, you know, how did you allow an incident to happen? Um, so that where where these two don't really align nicely, you know, where it's not an incident that happened to a student on um, you know the institution's property um, or estate or involving members of staff or other students, it, you know these are the these are the fuzzy borderlines. And you know, unfortunately, I think we've seen you know more recent incidents, particularly around issues of um, you know uh, sexual violence and harassment and um, racial harassment and hate crime um, and other forms of uh, hate incidents where they're happening you know, literally off the estate or in private accommodation or commuting uh, to studies um, on placements, um, study abroad, you know, all of these kind of, as I said, strange sort of liminal spaces, which are very much accepted as part and parcel of, of a university experience, but but where the lines are, are drawn are really uncertain. So I think everyone is still just trying to unpick some of these different duties and responsibilities, as well as what I was saying earlier. So this question of, you know, what is within your control and what is within your influence and where can you be an ally and where can you be clear and where can you call things out? And these are all, you know, very tricky issues, um, but they are things that I'm, I'm quite pleased that the sector is, is willing to grapple with now. So as you say, um, you know, we've, we've had, um, you know, we're having these, you know, inquiries from the equalities body. We, we're having, uh, you know, millions put in, um, you know, in the English sector um, to look at exactly how um, uh, universities are tackling harassment and hate crime and gender-based violence uh, through the OFS, formerly Hefke, um, Catalyst funding. We've got all the universities UK-led, you know, changing the culture work. So, I don't think everyone's got all the answers and yet I don't think everyone's embedded excellent practice everywhere yet, mostly because sometimes people are still debating what is excellent practice. But I think at least in the past couple of years, you know, we're now having these conversations. The challenge is, you know, every time you know we have an incident, it's one incident too many. Obviously, the impact of that on any one individual is huge. Um, and, you know, as you alluded to earlier, DK, you know, where, where we've got an international um, student, you know, suddenly this, this, you know, says a lot, especially right now for, for you know, how we're seen in the world, for, for who is welcomed and, and who we are looking out for. Um, in you know in our communities now it's time for yes but does it correlate here to set this week's correlation question is wonky's associate editor david carnahan welcome to yes but does it correlate the podcast segment that okay mr carnahan thank you thank you that's sing. enough this week we're looking at institutional recruitment in particular the percentage of uk students from state schools or colleges and the percentage of students from non-eu countries this is for all students and excludes providers with no students in either of these categories. But is there a relationship between recruitment from state school backgrounds and recruitment from countries outside the EU? Does it correlate? This was an interesting one. I'm going to I'm going to almost flip a mental coin um, because I'm unsure. I'm going to say um, I think it does correlate. Um, I'm trying to think of why it's a gut feeling um, it's a gut feeling from just some of the institutions I've worked with and um, I do a lot around you know um, 
inclusion of different groups and how you you meet different needs and it's always fascinating for me the conversations people have that in the same breath they talk about well we need to do this to support our um, international students and then in the second breath start talking about um, you know widening access for their local schools and, and different providers which uh, is is in no way um, a helpful anecdote um, but uh, I'm going to go for I think it might I think it might correlate I've got a feeling it doesn't, and I've got a feeling that that's got something to do with uh, state school entrance being much more about uh, geography than it has to do with institutional character. The answer is yes, to an extent. There is a moderate negative correlation, R squared is 0.40, meaning that providers that recruit well from non-EU countries tend to underrepresent state school UK entrance. You'll recall from earlier this year that around 7% of young people in the UK attend a non-state school. Data is from HISA and refers to the 2017-18 academic year, and where the data doesn't exist. I've not plotted it. And finally, the election rumbles on. Uh, in our corner of the world, there's a free fees pledge from Labour, a fudgy review from the Lib Dems, no mention of maintenance from the Greens, and who knows what will emerge from the Tories. Uh, DK, what have you seen this week? So, yes, there's an election, and isn't it fascinating? Weren't the debates great? You know, uh, <laughs> I'm really inspired by my voting choices this time around, I have to say. So the things I've read that I really like, the Institute for uh, Fiscal Studies have done a briefing. They seem to be the only people that think that the proposals in the Orga review for HE are still a thing and have uh, kind of dutifully uh, plotted out what their impact would be. They also note that the the Labour pledges are because of the changes to the uh, thresholds for repayment and because of the ONS changes to their treatment in the national accounts actually now look a lot cheaper compared to the uh, 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 the uh, current model than previously. Uh, they're still more expensive. I like that the Liberal Democrats literally have recycled the same pledge as a review of a, a review that they've been um, punting since uh, 2015. It is literally word for word the same pledge. You can look it up. It's quite uh, fascinating. But I was slightly un- unnerved to see that they are planning to strengthen the office for students to make sure that the sector is uh, delivering a high quality education, which if they are trying to w- trying to win university towns m- uh, uh, might not be popular amongst the staff vote, I would suggest. Um, and there's... Uh, I mean, I think the proposal everybody is waiting for is what uh, Labour are going to say on their National Education Service uh, pledge. What it sounds like from hearing Angela Rayner on the Today programme this morning is that it is going to be a cut, an entire cut of all student fees, uh, tuition fees, that the student... uh, the student maintenance loans, it looks like, are going to stay where they are. They have quite an um, an ambitious proposal to abolish fees from the moment they get into power. There's lots of interesting stuff to chat about as to quite how they could do that so quickly. Um, there's a lot of work that would need to be 
done and uh, a first year of this system I think would be very strange indeed. So there was an interesting thing there right with the so the Lib Dems saying oh let's strengthen the the, the regulator which just seems to be you know speak for um, you know this 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 will be a way to get universities to you know to just do everything better is, is we'll, uh, we'll strengthen the regulator which is fascinating because earlier on in the manifesto they um, you know they absolutely um, take Ofsted apart you know the high stakes culture of Ofsted inspections um, and testing and I'm quoting has led to pupils and teachers being anxious and stressed about going to school and creative subjects are being squeezed out and all of this so um, it almost feels a little bit like they're they're, they're pre-16 and their post-16 um, levers um, are, are conceived slightly differently um, so so that's uh, was, uh, slightly interesting for me. And, and Norman Lamb's uh, charter uh, uh, gets turned into legislation in the, in, in the Lib Dem yeah, manifesto. Yeah uh, I'm having I, I I find these things really frustrating when 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 it's um, you, you take um, you know an ama- you know when when a sector comes together and says we have something that we think is so important here you know student mental health and say you know we think you know come together we'll find a solution we've consulted and you know we're moving towards um, um, you know the charter with with student minds and co or we've got the um, um, you know the step change framework sort of before that you know we've come together and we, we've forged these things and then when you have external commentators you know imply that there's actually been no work going on and the only way to do this is through regulation um it it just frustrates me um as you know the we know that there's we you know no one is uh, an apologist for the sector we we, we all know that there's much more to be done but i mean you know as, as uh, chris shelley quite rightly did in a, in a great piece a while back you know work is going and we do need to value you know what's been done so far otherwise we we will we just keep reinventing the wheel um so i yes so i get very particularly annoyed when i see people start saying charters and other things that already are being developed or exist and and suddenly kind of just dropping them in as you know oh what a great idea and we'll make this mandatory and we'll make this in legislation it's like is that really necessary what what are you trying to do where are their levers where are their sticks and carrots i just don't think that um, that just felt a little bit lazy to me. It just kind of feels to me like a little bit of virtue signalling that um, they want to be seen to be doing something in that area and that that was something that they had lying about. I suspect if you plotted the amount of effort that the Lib Dems have put into their HE uh, pledges, um, it would be very, very low indeed. I don't think they've really thought about it. I think everybody's working on the assumption that the only HE pledge that is going to uh, 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 cut through in this election is the Labour and the Green Party uh, pledges to end student fees. That, whatever you think of the practicalities, is broadly a popular uh, pledge, despite the fact it's expensive, um, it's arguably regressive, and it is... Um, not necessarily the best thing for the sector as it currently stands, although the the, uh, sector is a grown-up, has uh, dealt with uh, numerous different uh, funding methodologies over the years, and it could probably deal with another change, even though it might not like it. I think we just need to be uh, clear with that. The Labour pledges play into another theme, an unexpected theme of the of the election on skills and on adult learning. Um, I think the offer that, that, uh, that, uh, uh, Labour have gone for on the theme, the 
the National Education Service is a powerful one. I think it does seem to be resonating with people, although the launch of it last week was a little bit wonky. Um, obviously, the kind of thing I like listening to, but not necessarily the kind of thing that's going to cut through with the general uh, public. But that potentially leads to a complete rethink of the way that uh, post can compulsory skills and education are delivered, uh, which could have a huge impact on the way that the sector uh, looks at what it offers. It possibly means the expectation is there will be less students that are studying traditional three-year degrees at age 18 and uh, more students that are studying uh, kind of vocationally related uh, qualifications. The Lib Dems try and uh, butter their bread on both sides by having the movement towards um, adult skills and the skills wallet, but kind of cloaking that with a lot of high-sounding ideas about the purpose of education not just being for uh, skills training. And I think the Green Party used some similar language as well. Um, I mean, that's an easy populist attack. It doesn't change the fact that quite a lot of education at all levels is about employment skills uh, training, not all of it, and it should never be all of it, but quite a lot of it is there. So all of us are, are waiting to see what the Conservatives are going to say on the topic, and I predict absolutely nothing. Um, so I found the, in, I mean, talking about uh, the lifelong learning, which, you know, I am I am a huge fan of, um, more attention being paid to, and, you know, I, I can give you a whole rant about querying the temporalities of higher education learning if you wish yes um, please but for, for the time um, anyway the, the what was really interesting for me actually was within the um lib dems when i first said you know they, they, they pick out specific ages for sort of drip feeding um their the money into these lovely little skills wallets uh, capital s capital w um so you know you get it's four grand at 20 age 25 from the government uh, three grand at age 40 three grand at age 55 um which you know is is fascinating just to turn people's attention to those different points in in uh, you know a typical um life and kind of say you know what's going on there so i, I appreciated like the the focus on that i'm not quite sure why those ages have been um it'd be nice to hear a little bit more about um the specifics of that and whether that would really work out um, mm. um but it was quite interesting um i'm a i'm a big fan of um um, um, Tom Sperlinger and, and Co's work and, and their book um, uh, Who Are Universities For and they, they talk very beautifully in there about um, the shape of a life and that all lives come you know, with different um, different structures and, and it's just so far removed from that original conception of you know the 18 year old um, man because you know it was a man mm. you know going off to, to um, you know um, uh, this one of the two universities um, for a few years and then to come back a man and carry on with life um, and but they talk about you know how we need to acknowledge complexity and we need to acknowledge difference and 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 rather than um, um, perhaps um, changing nationally the structure of when we expect people to be needing training at certain ages or at certain life stages how can we be more flexible overall and they talk about how how can the university adapt to the shapes of these different lives so um, whilst it was lovely to, to to refocus our attention on on learning at particular ages um, I would like to perhaps see more focus on on different um, uh, adaptability to different lives and different structures and, and different needs. 
So that's about it for this week. To find out more about anything we've discussed today, you'll find links on the episode page at wonky.com, where you can also leave your thoughts and comments. Don't forget you can subscribe to us automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on your favourite podcast directory, or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you think you've got what it takes to be a guest on the show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks again to our guests, Jess and DK, to everyone at Team Wonky for making the show happen, and of course to you for listening. Until next week, stay wonky. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.